0: If you have your Bible, turn there with me. Joshua is the sixth book in in the Bible. So think Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you get to Joshua. If you get to Judges or Samuel, you've gone too far, but it's right after the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua chapter 5. And as you turn there, let me just kind of remind you where we've been over the last three weeks in this series. The first week, Pastor Dean talked about the transition in leadership that happened as the Israelites went into the New Promised Land. Remember, they transitioned from Moses, Moses died, and Joshua took over. And so what a big change that was, psychologically, for the people of Israel. Of course, they liked Joshua, but Moses had been their leader for 40 years, and that was a major transition. And then the second week, Dean talked about um, how Joshua sent these spies into the city of Jericho. And they stayed at the home of Rahab, the prostitute. And she came to trust, believe in the one true God, and her life was changed. And so Dean talked about that transition in our lives that happens when we, when we come in contact with Christ, how he changes our lives. And then last week, Pastor Martin talked about the transition of the Israelites actually leaving the wilderness, going across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land for the first time, and how, they ha- how God parted the Jordan River, and they had to take those steps of faith into the river at flood stage before God parted it and let them come, go through. And so today, it looks like we are on the, very, on the verge of the attack, right? They've, they've crossed the Jordan River. They can see Jericho across this big valley. It looks like they're about ready to attack. So start with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast... Heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So, what that's saying is that basically back in the ancient Near East in Palestine, there was no major power. There wasn't like a major Egypt which had control of the whole area or Assyria. Like, it was just this area with lots of little city states. And these little city-states controlled just small pieces of territory. And sometimes they would make alliances with each other, and sometimes they would fight against each other. And so Jericho is this this city. It's a pretty powerful city-state. And if you go into Palestine from the east side, you have to go through the city of Jericho. That's that's the big player on the east side of Palestine at that time. And so as the Israelites are coming, Jericho sees this, this huge people group on their border And so they probably send out messengers to all these other little city-states out out on the the Mediterranean and other places. And they say, hey, send us, you know, you guys are our allies, send us help. Help us, you know, bring in soldiers. Well, let's make an alliance against the Israelites. But these other kings are like, you know, no way, right? There's no way we're going to fight these guys. Their God is really powerful. He he dries up the Jordan River, you know, all these cool things. And so we're not going to help you. And so verse 1 is basically saying that Jericho... Is alienated. They don't have any any allies gonna come to their rescue. And so they're under siege. They're they're trapped in their city. They they don't have anybody coming to their rescue. And so it looks like the battle is about to start. Israel, Israel has them surrounded, the Israelites have them surrounded, and all they have to do is is commence the battle. And you think that's what's about to happen, but in reality, God is gonna have the Israelites do three things before they get the battle started. So start with me in verse. Two, let's look at some of the things that happened here. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibbeth Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert forty years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. A little repetitive, but you get the idea. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So the first thing that God has the Israelites do before they attack Jericho is for all the men to be circumcised. Now, that's a bit, you may say, man, let's just kind of skip over that, right? I don't want to think about that. I I get it, we don't have to be too graphic here, but this is a big deal, and here's why. Circumcision was a foundation of what it meant to be an Israelite, of what it meant to be a Jew, a Hebrew. Remember, it wasn't part of the Mosaic law. This circumcision started with Abraham. It was the very first sign of the covenant. God said to Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself and your sons as a sign that you are in covenant with me. I am your God, and you're my son, and you're going to follow me, right? That was, that was a foundation. That's what it means to be an Israelite. And so from generation to generation to generation, Israelites had been circumcising their sons until this very first generation, which God takes out of Egypt. And so what that means is that's, that generation that God brought out of Egypt, that he did all those miracles for, that he, he showed his power to, they really weren't wholeheartedly committed to God, because they don't really care that much about circumcising their children. They, may, they, they kind of follow, they follow him through the desert, but in their hearts, they, don't, they are not really committed to God. And so the question that I was thinking is, why wouldn't God address this earlier, Why wouldn't God bring this up, you know, 30 years before, 20 years before and say, hey, Moses, the Israelites aren't circumcising their sons. You know, you need to, you need to address this. I think the answer to that is that God decided to wait until this whole generation had become adults and they were on the verge of going into the promised land to test them, to test them. You know, it's a big deal. Are they fully committed to God? It's a big deal for an adult male to be circumcised, right? Again, we don't have to get on the graphics, but it's painful, okay? It's not pleasant. And so for, and and actually later in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see a lot of Gentiles who are God-fearers. That means they believe in the God of Israel, they believe in a lot of the Jewish customs, but they will not be circumcised because it's such a big deal. They're not willing to do that. And so for, for these, for these males to, to, to be asked by God to circumcise themselves as adults, it's a big deal. It's a painful deal. But even, even more importantly, it's very risky. It makes them very vulnerable to attack. They are in the valley, on the edge of Jericho. They can probably see the city of Jericho. And in the ancient world, again, not to be too graphic, but in the ancient world, they didn't have like anesthetics and you know, lots, of, lots of good uh, surgical procedures. And so if you circumcise yourself, it took... Roughly a week or longer to heal from that. And then you're, you're pretty much laid up the whole time. And so, for the whole army of Israel to be circumcised within view, within eyesight of Jericho, was a big deal. It made them vulnerable to attack. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 34, you can read a story about a group of people who circumcised themselves and who were killed off. Jacob's sons, they were living in Palestine at that time. And there was, a, there was a Gentile town nearby, and the prince of that town, you know, the Old Testament's full of, of a lot of not nice stories, but the prince of that town rapes one of Jacob's daughters, and then he wants to marry her. And so Jacob's sons are like, well, you know, they're angry, and so they say, okay, if you want to marry our sister, you and your whole town have to be circumcised. And so the prince is like, okay, we'll do it. So the whole town is circumcised, and then the next day, while they're laid up in bed, they can't, you know, they're in, they're in pain, they can't do anything, the, the sons of Jacob go in there and kill them off. A whole town of people. And so that's the kind of danger that the Israelites are putting themselves in here by being circumcised. God is saying, do you trust me? Are you wholehearted in your commitment to me or not? If you're not, just go back in the wilderness right now. But they passed the test. They say, God, we, we do trust you. We are committed to you. Even if it's painful, even if it's, it's dangerous, even if it makes us vulnerable to attack, God, we have no other option. We, we're not going to be able to take this city in our own power. And so, God, whatever you ask us to do, we'll do. And so, in response to that, in verse 9, God says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What God is saying there is that today I've removed that stigma of being a slave from you. I've removed that, that slavery mentality from you. See, that first generation, when they, came out of, when they came out from Egypt, they were not fully surrendered to God. They didn't fully trust God as a father. They didn't believe that God would take care of them. They didn't view themselves as sons and daughters of God. They followed God, but when they faced obstacles, when they got to the promised land, they saw these huge cities with, with giants and armies. They were like, oh, no way. There's no way we can do this. There's no way that we're, we can take on these guys. There's no way that our God will take care of us. And they, they said, hey, let's go back to Egypt. That's, that's comfortable. I, I feel comfortable being a slave. I feel, you know, you, you get whipped once in a while, you get beaten, but that's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on, we got food, right? They had this slavery mentality. They, they viewed themselves as slaves, not as sons and daughters of God. And I think a principle that we can take away from this is that until you trust Christ fully, Until you truly surrender your life to God and view God as your father, as a good father who will take care of you, who will always take care of you, and until you view yourself that way as a son, as a daughter of God, your old identity will not change. It won't. You can try to go to to church, you can try to be good, be a real moral person, but when major obstacles come up, you will revert, you will act out of your old identity out of who you truly are and what you truly trust in which is yourself or whatever idols you have in your life until you trust God until you put your faith completely in him and so God says today I've removed that stigma that old identity I've made you truly sons and daughters of God let's keep going on verse 10 on the evening of the 14th day of the month While camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. So the first thing they do is that they're they're circumcised. But the second thing they do is they celebrate the Passover. They remember how God saved them from Egypt, how he delivered them from slavery. And by remembering God's salvation, that strengthens their faith in the present. They know that God, the same God who delivered them then, will deliver them now. The same God that took care of them then will take care of them now. See, faith is, it's remembering and trusting in God's salvation in the past. And that's what a lot of us think of faith. We think of, okay, yes, Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago for my sins. That's what faith is. Well, yeah, that's, that's absolutely part of faith. That's, that's the core part. But then you have to take that, that belief And the historical truth of Christianity, you have to take that and you have to apply that to your life right now in the present and going forward into the future. You have to believe, Romans 8, 32, that He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? That's what faith is. It's saying, look, if if God gave His Son... That was the hardest part. If God was willing to give his son to die on a cross for my sins, if God was willing to do that for me, how will he not also take care of all of my needs? Everything else is small. Everything else is 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 very easy for God. That was the hardest thing for God to do to give his son for me. And if God was willing to do that, then of course he's going to take care of me. Of course he's going to work for my good. Of course he loves me and he's he's controlling my destiny. Faith remembers the past, but then it follows God in the present and into the future. It doesn't revert back. It trusts him. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is a bad memory, a fuzzy memory. Remember the first temptation in the garden. Satan goes to Eve and says, did God really say? Did God really say that? And That's what he loves to say to us. Did God really say that to you? Did God really do that for you in the past it, are you sure God is real? Are you sure that you've experienced him? Are you sure that, 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 that you can believe scripture? Are you sure? And he loves to mess with your memory and just make it fuzzy and, and just keep, keep hammering on you and getting you distracted until pretty soon you're like, man, I, yeah, I don't think God's ever done anything for me. When in reality, he's been taking care of you the whole way and he, he sent his son for you. Journal. Do what you need to do, but remember what God has done in your life, because that will give you strength. That will give you faith for the present. So the first thing the Israelites do is they recommit to God through circumcision. Then they remember God's salvation through the Passover. And third, now they're going to begin to receive new provision from God. Verse 12, or verse 11. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land there was no longer any manna for the Israelites but that year they ate the produce of Canaan so here's the idea they are in the valley around Jericho this is a big area and the people of Jericho had planted planted fields full of grain and they had vineyards and they had orchards and all this kind of stuff And so during the siege, they go into their city. They go into their walled city. And so now the Israelites move in. They begin taking over. And so they begin harvesting this grain. They begin picking the produce. They begin, you know, getting fruit from the vineyards. And at that time then, the manna stops. No more manna. Now think about this from from the Israelites' perspective. On one hand, I'm sure that they like the variety, right? I mean, they're tired of manna. They're ready to have some whole grain bread with, with some grape jelly, maybe a little peanut butter in there, I don't know, but like to have some variety is nice for them, so I'm sure that they were thankful for that, but on the other hand, I'm sure that that it was scary to lose that stability of the manna. I'm sure, you know, they complained about manna sometimes, oh, I'm so tired of eating manna, manna for breakfast, manna for, for dinner, you know, like, oh man, let's have something else, but at the same time, it's nice to know that every day you're getting manna. Right? You don't have to think too hard about where your food is coming from. You're not worried about providing for your family. You know you're getting manna. And so now the manna stops. Now they have to say, okay, God's going to provide for us in a different way. We're going to have to plant, plant crops. We're going to have to harvest. We're gonna, you know, God's going to provide for us in different ways. And I'm sure on one hand that was exciting, but on the other hand I'm sure that was scary. It took faith. I think a principle we can take from that is that when God calls us to make a major transition, he often changes the way he provides for us. And it can feel less secure, even though ultimately it's for our good. It's for our good. And again, it's a test, I think. God is testing us. Do you trust me? Yes, I took care of you this way in the past, but now I'm gonna take care of you a different way in the future. Do you trust me? Are you willing to keep moving forward? All right, so... They've they've passed all these tests. They are now ready for battle. Verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men march around the city once with all the excuse me with all the armed men do this for 6 days have 7 priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark on the 7th day march around the city 7 times with the priests blowing the trumpets when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets have all the people give a loud shout then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in so now they're on, they're, they're ready for battle, they're getting ready, and this passage starts out with, with Joshua kind of looking out at Jericho. He's the commander, he's looking out at Jericho, and I, I imagine that he's probably feeling a little intimidated. I mean, Joshua's been in battles before, he's, he's led the Israelites to fight against bandits and raiders and people like that, but he's never, ever led an attack on a walled city like Jericho. Jericho is a major city, it's, it's formidable. It had two walls, the first wall was... Was about it was twenty feet high and about six feet wide, and then it had another wall behind that, which was thirty feet high and twelve feet wide, and it had big buildings on the top where people could shoot arrows down at you. And so this is this is a tough structure. And remember, the Israelites—they're not like a highly trained army. Okay, these are just they're just people. They know how to fight a little bit with a sword, but they're you know this is they're not like the Egyptian army. They're not like the Babylonian army. They don't they don't do sieges on cities. And so Joshua, I'm sure Joshua's like man okay, I trust God, I know he's going to deliver this city to, you know, give it to us, but I have no idea how this is going to go. Like, he's just looking at this thing like, man, I just have no clue what we're going to do, but I'm going to obey God whatever he wants to do. And at that time, then he looks out and he sees this huge warrior, this huge messenger of God. He doesn't know who the guy is, and a lot of people think this, some people think it's an angel, a lot of people think this is pre-incarnate Christ, this is Jesus. In the Old Testament, coming as the commander of God's army, whoever it is, Joshua sees this guy, you know, pretty, pretty intimidating dude, and he, and he asks who he is, and, and he says, hey, who are you for? Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the, the, the answer is very strange. He says, neither. Not for either one of you, but for com- as commander of the Lord's army, I come. And I've always thought that's very odd. Like, like, okay, isn't, isn't God for the Israelites? Right? That seems like the, the whole point of the of the, the story here. But I think the, the, the key to understanding this is to understand Joshua's question. What Joshua is saying is, does your, does your allegiance lie with me? Are you loyal to me? Or are you loyal to the king of Jericho? Who are you loyal to? Where does your allegiance lie? And the, the commander says, look, God has no allegiances. There is no higher authority than God. And so the question is not which side is God on, who is God loyal to, the question is who's on God's side, who's loyal to God. God doesn't come to take sides, God comes to take over. When Joshua hears this, he gets it and he bows down. He knows that God is in charge and he submits to that, he wants to be on God's side. I think this is important for us to understand as a people, as we face transition. You know, as as we go through transition, conflict is natural. You get different perspectives. People have different views on how we should change and how things should happen. And that's natural. I think sometimes we feel like all conflict is bad. It's not. It's natural. People just have different perspectives. But the problem comes when we assume that God is on our side and is against our opponent. Right? I'm right he's wrong, God agrees with me. And the reality is that in every conflict, God calls everyone to humble themselves, to submit to his authority, and to come to his side. He is the only one who's completely right in every situation. He's the true king. So then God gives directions to Joshua. And you know the story, Joshua follows them. The walls come come tumbling down, right? Like the the old children's song and the Israelites win the battle. Well, as I was looking at this story, I I was thinking of lots of applications, and I'm sure you probably could too, maybe for your own life personally. But there was one that really stood out to me, and I I think it applies to our church as a whole. I think as a church, we've been going through a lot of transitions. And I think there's some parallels with the transitions the Israelites were going through. The first big transition we went through was a couple years ago, right? What, What happened a couple years ago? Anybody know? You're all like, right? Did I, did I put you to sleep? I'm sorry, guys. What, what, what happened a couple years ago? Yeah, we merged, consolidated, right? We came together, a new church out of two former churches. That was a big deal. And so the, the theme over our last two years has really been unity, right? We're trying to become a new, a new church, a new people. Our, our, the, you know, the view, our, our, our theme over the last two years really hasn't been reaching out so much. It really hasn't been, you know, taking new ground, you know, reaching the kingdom, bringing in new people for Christ. Of course, we want to do that, absolutely. But the the goal and the theme has really been how do we bring these two churches together and, you know, how do we we, uh, create this new church? How do we learn to become a new people? And, of course, our ultimate goal is to reach out. That's why we came together, right? That was the purpose, to create momentum and energy so we could reach out. But initially, we were just focused on on consolidating, becoming a new church. And I think it's been successful. I think we've done that pretty well. Now, another major transition we've had just a month ago, we had a leadership transition, right? Pastor John retired, and that's a big deal. It is a big deal. We don't want to try to pretend like it's not. Pastor John, you know, he was here, obviously, the whole time at Nova, but he was at Packview for 25 years, had so many relational connections to, to people here. Many of you, he married you, he, he baptized you, maybe he buried, you know, your parents. I mean, he's just been so involved in people's lives, and many of the structures here in our church, the systems that enable us to function smoothly, were put in place by Pastor John. And so it's a big deal for him to retire. I hope, I hope you view the present pastoral staff as competent. I think, we're, I think we'll do all right, but it's still a big deal psychologically for him to move on. It's a transition. God's plans for us won't change. We're still moving forward, but we have to adjust. So there have been those two major transitions in our church in the last two and a half years, but I think there is a third transition that we are facing that we're on the verge of going into, and maybe you don't realize that, but I think it's actually began about six months ago, and that's the fact that we're growing. We're growing. We're not, you know, we're not busting at the seams, but we're definitely growing. Our children's ministry is growing. We have a lot more kids than we did. Uh, overall attendance is up. And I think that we are on the verge of, of growth, of significant growth. I think we're on the verge of entering into that reason for which we consolidate it, to bring new people to Christ. And of course, that sounds great. That's what we want. We want Nova to grow. We want to reach people with the gospel. We want, to, we want to make new disciples of Christ. We want to reach, you know, take new land for the kingdom of God, of course. We would all say yes to that. But growth can also be scary because for growth to continue it requires changes to the status quo to our comfort zones and many of us will probably be asked to serve more work harder make greater sacrifices in order for growth to happen it won't necessarily be easy growth creates problems anytime you're successful well if you're not successful uh, you know decrease creates problems too that's a bad kind of problem Growth creates good kinds of problems, but nevertheless, you have to wrestle. How do we handle these changes? And if we want to to be able to successfully transition into the new opportunities, we're going to need to, to embrace these and to be willing to step up to the challenge. And I think that's where a lot of established churches really stagnate, and they refuse to transition because they realize that if they get more people, the church will need to change. And eventually they decide that they, prefer that they prefer to stay in their comfort zones more than to step up to face new challenges and make changes in order to bring people to Christ. Now I think for us, if we want to change, if we want to bring people in, we're going to have to do what the Israelites did. We have to recommit to God, even if it's painful, even if it feels risky. We have to remember God's salvation and live by faith in the presence. We have to receive new provision from God. God will take care of our church in new ways. We have to reorient and remember look this is about God. This is not fundamentally about my preferences. This is about God and his kingdom. And then we have to respond to God's direction and be obedient to it. I want to close today with a story that I think illustrates my my application. I think we have it on the overhead here. I got this actually out of a youth workers book a long time ago, but I have no idea what book, so I'm not going to cite it. Apologize. The life-saving station. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but a few committed members kept a constant watch over the sea. Day and night, they went out tirelessly searching for lost and drowning sailors. Some of the people who were saved wanted to join the station and give their time, money, and energy to support it. New boats were bought and new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the, buildings were so, the building was so crude and poor. They wanted a more comfortable place for those who had been saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency mattresses with beds, put better furniture in the rooms, and enlarged the building. The life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and made it into an attractive clubhouse. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on rescue missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do it for them. The life-saving theme still prevailed as the club's motto, and there was a ceremonial lifeboat in the room where club meetings were held. Around this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boats filled with cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some had odd customs and spoke strange languages. The beautiful new building was in chaos. The property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to rescue people, they could start their own life-saving station down the coast. If you visit that seacoast today, you will find an exclusive club by the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most people drown. As God leads us forward to face new challenges and reach more people with the gospel, may we not resist his direction as a hindrance to the normal social life of our club. But may we embrace it as our mission and courageously live out our identity as sons and daughters of God and take that land that he's calling us to take. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are merciful and kind to us. And Lord, you have guided us through the consolidation. You are guiding us through the retirement of Pastor John. And now, Lord, you are guiding us into perhaps a period of growth. You're calling us to reach out. You're calling us to make changes, to to reach unchurched people in the South Bay. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to do that in faith, courageously taking that land that you've called us to take. For the name and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The Lord says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So go in peace. I'll see you on the plaza.